Thank you, ladies. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I do feel that. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. It's really good to have uh, a little respite from that heat. I enjoy it thoroughly, especially under these lights. <laughs> we are in a, in a series on the gospel according to Mark. And Mark, uh, through the words of Jesus and through his own narration, continues to hearken back to some principles and some themes that the people of God have sort of let slide or forgotten. They have wandered, if you will. I guess they're like us, prone to wander. And so this morning, before we get into the, the passage that we'll be in, which picks up from where we left off last week, I want to start all the way back at what I believe is the principle here that Jesus is going to be talking about. So that's all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 12. And I'd like you, if you, if you can, open up to Genesis 12. We know at this point in the story of God that He has created all things, um, all of the animals and creatures, all of the landscapes, male and female, He's created them. And then the world has taken a real vicious turn for the worst, uh, having rejected God's life, trying to create our own life. And then a bunch of other gnarly things happen. And then we hit this scene in Genesis chapter 12, where God seems to initiate a very long-term dedicated plan to bring life back to people who have walked away from real life. And so he does this in the oddest way by calling out one family, if you will, a household among all of the families of the world. He says, I'm choosing you. Now, we kind of say, well, that's not really fair. Our modern minds kind of don't like that. It seems discriminatory at, at best. Why well, choose just one family? But as you'll see here, I, I can't answer that question, by the way. I take that question to God. Why did you just do this? I think there's a way that God is revealing Himself to human beings, which seems to always start small and grow through human interactions and relationships. I'm, I'm, I like efficiency, so I would like God to just come in and boom, level the playing field, fix stuff, and then let's get on with other stuff. But God starts with one family, and here He starts with one man, and He issues a promise. That is something that separates us from the animals, isn't it? An ability to make a promise. There's something profound in a promise. So read with me in Genesis 12. We'll pick it up in verse 1. This is a man named Abram, soon to become Abraham, okay? But he's not Abraham yet because God is about to call him. Here we go. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. We can't read over that too quickly, okay? For us, it's like, oh, rent a U-Haul and go to Texas. You know, it's not that big of a deal. This is a huge ask for a nomadic tribesman in the ancient world. You have to leave everything that you have faith in. Abraham's faith is tied inseparably to his family, his ancestors, his territory, his land. This is what will allow him to survive. Not to mention his gods. He has these household gods. Everybody did. You worship someone, always. So Abraham is being called to leave everything that he has trust in, not only for his day-to-day -day life, but for ongoing life. How will he survive? God says, leave all that and come with me. Sounds a little bit like Jesus to the disciples, doesn't it? Huh? <laughs> you know, leave all that, come and follow me. Okay, so why? Well, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All of the families on the earth will be blessed through you. God's apparently not that discriminatory, is he? He seems to choose one 
for the purpose of blessing all. He has an intention. There's something about our condition, I think, that we can learn by the way God tries to reveal himself to us, even though we wander often. So he says, all of the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And as Abraham's household grows, he, but he becomes a nation. Twelve tribes of different kinds of Israelite, they grow and they expand and become this great people. And God helps them eventually construct a temple, which will be at the heart of our text today in the Gospel of Mark. This temple becomes the heart of the nation's life. It's the focal point of its security. The presence of the temple in the community indicates that God is here and He's with us. Therefore, we're good to go. We are safe. It has every, all of their identity is bound up with the temple, the Torah, and their territory. The Torah is the, is the Bible at that point that they have, the, the Hebrew scriptures. We have the scriptures, we have a temple, and we have the land that God gave us, the nation, the territory, and that's who we are, okay? So, when God gives them the temple, he gives a really interesting instruction and he does so in a way that it furthers the promise he made to Abraham. He says, I want this temple to become a house of prayer for all of the nations. Now we start to see a little bit about what it means to bless others. Blessing somebody by giving attention to them, blessing somebody by allowing them into the space or the place of God's presence so that they too can turn their hearts and their faces to God, okay? So that is how we bless. He says, this temple is going to become a house of prayer for all of the people of the world. That's what I want it to be. There's a little bit of a promise continued there. It's a place where non-believers, if you will, can come and pray. Now, throughout their history, as we pick it up from Abraham and kind of hit the fast-forward button, we see Israel sort of wander in and out of that promise. Sometimes they really are tracking with God. Oftentimes, they're not. And they really struggle with this promise. They love that they're chosen by God. They love that they're forgiven by God in the temple is a place where forgiveness happens through sacrifice, yes? And so they love that they're chosen. They love that they're forgiven. They have a very hard time extending that same forgiveness to others, to the Gentiles or the non-Jews, the people who are not in that original family that God called. And you kind of say, well, why not? Well, you know, come on. The Gentiles, the non-Jews... They don't do any of the stuff that God wants people to do. <laughs> they don't follow his law. They don't even worship God. They worship these other weird gods that they carved out of stone and wood or just invented. They break his law. They worship false gods. They do things that are wrong and evil. And, and... Almost all of them, by the time we get to Jesus' day, are part of a nation that at one point or another has had a very bloody history with Israel. <laughs> They're kind of from the enemies of your long-term family. That's tough. How do you bless those kinds of folks? It strikes me that for a Jewish man or woman to really take seriously God's promise, a great deal of forgiveness would be the starting place. Like Abraham did, a Jewish person would have to simply put his or her faith in God only. God alone will judge. God alone can change people. So for a Jewish person to follow that promise of God and become a blessing, he or she has to start with forgiveness saying, I'm going to let go of the things that you've done or do because it's not really my job. That's God's job. And instead, I'm going to bless you. And in this case, as we're going to talk about the temple, 
This place of worship is supposed to be a place for you to come and pray. The people of God who wanted to be a part of God's promise would have to begin with the notion that God forgave them or he forgives us. And if I am one that's forgiven by God, then that levels the playing field. Anybody else can sit there with me. I no longer sit above. To the one who does not live this way, he or she tragically becomes an unfulfilled promise, a promise that doesn't actually happen. So that, my friends, is where we will enter into the story of Mark. You can flip over to Mark chapter 11 now, where we're going to rejoin Jesus in his, in his story here through the gospel of Mark. The text we want to read now is like a sandwich, which is, I'm sure, why Andrew is doing sandwiches today, you know? Mark likes to write this, it's kind of like, I think the technical term is interclation or something like that. He, he starts with an idea, he goes to another section, and then he ends with the same idea. So we're going to go fig tree, temple, fig tree. He sandwiches the, the temple between two fig tree buns or whatever. That's a weird way to think about it, but there it is. I want you to see in this opening scene... Um, not Jesus getting mad at a tree. We kind of know Jesus enough at this point to know he's not, I mean, he does crazy stuff, but he's not that crazy, okay? He's doing something much more intentional and deep. So pay very close attention. Um, verse 12 is where we'll start. Mark 11, verse 12. So remember, Jesus is on the road with his disciples, and he's headed toward Jerusalem. In the last scene, he kind of had that not-so-triumphal entry. He went into the temple arena, poked his head around a little bit, and then snuck back out quietly up to a village called Bethany. Verse 12, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. And so he went over to see if he could find any figs on it. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. <laughs> That's weird, you know. You're walking around with Jesus. And it, it, first of all, it's the morning time, and he's already hungry. And the, I mean, they've left the house, and now he's hungry. And then he sees this tree and walks up to it and starts talking to it. And he's upset with the tree. Well, let's back up a little bit. Bethany is probably about, I think it's not even two miles away from Jerusalem. So they have a pretty short walk. It's up on the crest of this sort of hill ridge. So they probably have to walk down a little bit and then back up to Jerusalem. They're coming in from the east. And as they do, he sees... Uh, he sees this tree. Perhaps he skipped breakfast. That's why he's a little hungry. He gets to this tree. There's no fruit on it. And he emphatically curses the tree. May nobody ever eat fruit from you again. He's kind of gone from hungry to hangry. You know, what's going on? You say, why is this the case? Well, notice how Mark has told us it's too early in the season for figs to be growing. So is Jesus just sort of uh, horticulturally unreasonable here, you know? Is he just not paying attention to the way plants grow? I don't think so. I think what he's doing here is he's giving us a parable, and he's acting out the parable. Fig trees are leafy year-round, and the fruit on them really only, it only ripens at the end of the summer. And so we think this is probably happening, this is almost definitely happening during Passover. And Passover is hitting in the month of Nisan, or our mid-April. So he's kind of on the front end of spring, and these aren't supposed to be ripe for quite a while. And the fig tree always has sort of little buds that are growing into figs. They seem to always be there, but often, most of the year, they're just uh, super dense and hard and bitter. They're not good for eating. So as a, as a parable, Jesus is pointing to a fig tree as an image, and there's two things that it symbolizes. One is uh, a very ancient image for the Israeli people themselves, which is it's a symbol of God's 
safety and presence and prosperity and provision to them. So, I mean, the, you've seen the fig tree. If you've been reading the Bible at all, you see the fig tree come in all over the place, right? So there's that piece of it. But then just more uh, on the ground, so to speak, a fig tree is an example of a kind of plant that promises something it doesn't deliver except for at the very end of summer. Does that make sense? So in the same way that we might think of a um, mighty oak as, a, as an example of time-tested strength, yeah? It's as mighty as an oak. Or you might think of a fragrant lilac as an example of subtle beauty, okay? You'd think of a fig tree as an example of an unfulfilled promise. It would be understood that it often looks leafy and green and healthy and whole, but when you get up to it, there's no figs on it. So Jesus isn't angry with the fig tree per se. He's using it as a common example to help people see something he wants them to see. This is not, though it exists well, and it looks like it's from far off. Remember, he sees the leaves. Anybody can see it. From a distance, it looks promising. When you get right up close to it, it's not. We might paraphrase verse 13 like this. Jesus could see that the fig tree had good green leaves, which would usually suggest that it was healthy and fruitful. When he actually investigated, looking beyond its initial appearances, there was no fruit. And now, with this fig tree, Jesus has just cursed it. The disciples are listening, Mark tells us. And in the background is the holy city, Jerusalem. You might imagine Jesus standing there talking to the tree with the disciples hearing him, and in the backdrop, they can see Herod's temple. Colleen, can you hit that first slide for us? I want you to see a little picture of, now he would, this is like from a helicopter in the first century, which they were cool. But this is, this is just an artist's rendering, but it is looking at it from the east side. I'll get to the a point where you notice, see the two different ramps that are coming up to the temple mount? They wouldn't see it from this aerial of a view, uh, but they would see it similar to this. And you see how big it is. Now, the temple structure is right in the middle, and then that whole big flat rectangle is the temple mount. And this is the temple that Herod built, okay? So this is in the backdrop, if you will, when they're cursing this fig tree. Notice this thing is like 35 acres wide. All right, 24 football fields, 35 acres in, in uh, that's how big it is. You fit 24 football fields in there. You can kind of see the people going through two gates on the side. I think they're scaled rightly. So this is a huge, huge thing. To compare, the Acropolis in Athens is about one-third the size of this first century temple. I was there in February, and on the backside... Uh, now the city obviously looks very different, but there's some tunnels that go down to the original bricks that Herod laid down. There's stones that he cut, and there was one stone that was 41 feet long. Now this ceiling is 33 feet high. So there's one single stone that was 41 feet long by 15 by about 11 and a half or 12. The thing weighs, what does it weigh? 370 tons just for one stone. Our best hydraulic equipment today can lift 250 tons. These guys were geniuses. Herod loved to build stuff. So just building the temple mount, the big flat rectangle you see there, was a huge deal, not to mention the temple itself on top of it. So you see all this in the background. Now move to the next slide for me, uh, Colleen. I've highlighted here what would have been the court of the Gentiles. So. The place in the middle is reserved strictly for Jewish men and women. Uh, you can see another court inside. That would be the court of the women. So this whole blue arena is the court of the Gentiles, that whole space, okay? And this, it was all paved with marble. Beautiful, smooth marble pavement, 35 acres of paved marble. You say this is a huge space dedicated for Gentiles to come and worship God, turn their hearts and their faces toward Yahweh. It's a massive spot. So you kind of look at that and you say, huh, 
This is a big deal. Move one more slide for me. As you got closer, this is just a little zoom-in shot. Notice the wall here that has a few gaps. And in those gaps, this is about four and a half foot high wall. In those gaps, there would be stones. We've found some stones written in Latin, carved in Latin and in Greek that say, if you're a Gentile and you go beyond here, that's a choice to die. <laughs> so you, you stayed in the court of the Gentiles. You didn't go past that four and a half foot wall. But that's just a zoom in shot. And you can advance to the next one. We'll just leave it up as we talk about this. So we go back to our story here. Pick it up with me in verse 15. And you kind of look at all of this stuff, the wall, the city, the temple, and everything from a distance. And you wonder if these aren't, is this really showing a picture of fruitfulness? Or is this showing just the leaves? And if we get up close, there won't be much fruitfulness there. Verse 15, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and in the chairs of those who were selling turtle doves. And he would not permit anybody to carry merchandise through the temple courts. No more shortcutting through here. People often would come up the one entrance on the side, and they'd cut through to go out the other side to get up to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> the temple was a good shortcut, okay? So he, he even stopped those people who were just traveling through. And he said to them, verse 17, the Scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning on how to kill him. That's a big deal, you know. A guy goes into a market and gets upset, and they're like, capital punishment. He's doing something very significant because he is striking at the heart of his own people's identity. And he's saying, I have authority over this temple. That is a major, major deal. They know it, and so they begin to figure out a way to snuff him out. But they were also afraid of him because the people were so amazed by his teaching. Matthew records that children and infants were praising God because of this Jesus of Nazareth entering into the temple. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. Okay, so he's come into the city. First, he just looked around, left. Now he comes into the city and does a borderline violent demonstration of a sign act, very prophetic. And he says, this should be a house of prayer for all of the nations. And that he's quoting from Isaiah 56. God says that it will be like this, but the people are not fulfilling that promise. You say, well, wait, is that what this is all about? Is this about them not fulfilling a promise? That sounds a little bit... I thought that this was about not selling stuff at church. Yeah? You're not supposed to sell things when you're at church. I thought that's what it was about. That's for the majority of my life, that's how I read and interpreted this passage. He's saying that if you have any kind of financial exchange at church, you're way out of line. At the last church where I served, I remember the day that we set up a bookstore in the front entryway of our church, and I was really distraught about it. I, th I thought, man, if Jesus was here, he'd be knocking those bookshelves right over. He'd be super upset about it. I, can't... I was all fired up about it. Now, as we speak, I'm trying to do a little mini fundraiser to save money to build a bookstore, a small one, in our entryway. You say, well, geez, how did your heart change on that? Let me walk you through it. Let me walk you through it. I am confident that this bookstore will eventually get going. We'll provide people with a great service. And we won't do it for profit. It'll just be a service so that you don't have to always go online to get good books, okay? But let me ask you this. This is how my mind changed on this topic and on this passage. During the Passover season, and this is when every single Jewish household is required by law to go up and sacrifice a lamb. Now, don't think household as just your single family unit, okay? 
It's, it's your family, aunts, uncles, cousins, your grandmas and grandpas, your slaves and servants, everybody. It's a household sacrifices one lamb. So they were much bigger. But how many lambs do you suppose would be sacrificed during the Passover week? I, I was telling some friends this week that for most of my life I figured it was just one lamb because I just figured that. I never thought much of it. No, there'd be about 30,000 in that week. Josephus is the Jewish historian from this era. He says during Passover season in 66 AD, there were over 250,000 lambs slaughtered during the Passover season overall. So this is a big deal. Now, you're traveling up to the temple, and your lamb that you're going to sacrifice has to be totally spotless, clean, without any kind of scratch, bruise, nick, scab, can't have anything on it. You imagine what it's like doing a 15, 20 days on the road through the wilderness with a little lamb keeping it perfectly spotless? <laughs> That's just the lamb. How about your turtle doves? They can't have a feather out of place. They can't have anything wrong with them. The Levite priests have to see them, examine them, and say, okay, this is without blemish. So for people to be, and one more thing, you're coming from all kinds of different worlds, nations, countries. So you're bringing currencies from your hometown into the holy city, and you had to pay a one-half shekel temple tax. Everybody had to do it, every household. So you had to have your money changed. So to actually worship according to the law, the priests wanted to serve the people by providing them with spotless lambs and spotless turtle doves and a way to exchange their foreign currencies for the right currency for the temple. This was all a really good thing to do. They wanted to help them. And this was a big deal. How many priests do you suppose were working during Passover week? I used to figure, well, you know, you look at that, that's like a giant church building, so there's probably about 30 people on staff. I don't know. That's just what I figured. There's probably about 700 priests working, expert butchers. Can you imagine how many lambs they have to go through in a day? Herod ran an aqueduct system into the temple and into the city. The one for the city provided water for people. The one into the temple flowed water in around the altar area, and there were grooves cut in the marble to wash the blood down into that valley. See it on the southern side there? That's the Kidron Valley. So much blood would be washed down into that valley and river that it would coagulate and form dams, and then it would dry, and the farmers would go and shovel coagulated blood up onto the side of the river, and it would dry out, and they would sell it for blood meal, for fertilizer for their crops, and then that would go back to the temple. This was a massive production. Tons, tens and tens of thousands of people coming to worship Yahweh. So that there's money changers and people selling cattle and doing all of this is normal. It's to be expected. There's no possible way it could have got done without that. But Jesus had a problem. They were doing something that he really got fired up about. Why does he say, you have turned this place into a den of thieves when it was supposed to be a prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations? What's he driving at? I think that those two statements actually really give us a clue. You have done this, but it was supposed to be this. Here's what you've done but it was supposed to be entirely different. The nations, meaning the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, we might say non-believers, they should be able to come here and pray. But you are thieving here. You're stealing something from somebody. And I think those both drive us back to Genesis 12 where we started. The promise is this, God's people Israel will become a blessing to the world. That's going to happen. It's guaranteed. God said it's going to happen. So what happens when God's people don't live into God's own promise? Do we end up like the fig tree? Looking all leafy and green, but fruitless nonetheless? 
You see, throughout the history of the Jews, they have either lived into God's promise or they haven't. And in the ways that they don't live into God's promise, God clears them out. He moves them like an obstacle out of the way. It's very interesting. Jesus is drawing to our mind a major theme that all of God's people in the temple region and even all of Jerusalem have lost. They've wandered away from it. I think if Mark was preaching this morning, he would say this. One thing that happens when you don't live into the promise of God is that the temple becomes unwelcoming to outsiders. Well-meaning people trying to provide a very good service will end up driving non-believing people away from the house of prayer. When I have said from the very beginning that the promise is to bless those people, not to drive them out, the court of the Gentiles had become a place just to make profit, a place just to buy and sell and wheel and deal, a place even so insignificant that it's just a pretty good shortcut, <laughs> like, a, like a park. I get off on the Mac stop down at the Lloyd Center, uh, and <laughs> if I'm headed south, you've got to go around this big building. Sometimes I cut through the building. But it's all fancy in there, real shiny marble floors and stuff. And it's like, I don't even know what the building is, but I'm like, I bet they don't want me to use this for a shortcut. But I do. Anyway, that's what, it's not the temple at least, right? So they have this huge hustle, bustle, chaos, commerce going on. And you can imagine with all the sheeps and the bulls and the, and the bird cages, You've got straw and droppings and urine and smells and all kinds of stuff going on. It doesn't sound much like a house of prayer, does it? It sounds like an average market. I think the most important part, according to Jesus, was that these people were turning the temple of God into something that no longer invited non-Jews to come and pray. This is a big, big deal for Jesus. And I would ask us as a church, where are we? My brothers and sisters, men and women, where are we as a people of God? We've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the true historical account of how God ultimately finally revealed himself to the world and how he's rescuing the entire cosmos through Jesus of Nazareth. And what are we doing with that knowledge? Jesus says that as his temple, so here's the temple of old. Colleen, you can turn that slide off now. Now, Jesus says we are the temple. Peter uses language of saying we're being fitted together like stones into a spiritual temple. Other New Testament languages says you yourselves, your body is now a temple, the dwelling place of God's presence. And if it is, what does that mean for us? Are we fulfilling the same promise or are we bucking against it? Are we believing and living into the promise of God or are we living into the promise of America? Are you in step with the intention of God in this world? His intention which is to make you into a blessing to those in your life? Or have we become too cluttered and chaotic with convenience and commerce? Are we so wrapped up in those things that we can't actually be forgiving? We can't become a welcoming presence to those in our midst, especially to those who do not belong to the people of God already. I think it was easy for them to sort of diminish the Gentile and say, you know what, you're not part of what we're doing, you're not part of the people of God, you worship weird gods made out of wood and stone and you don't follow any of God's Bible, come on. Just leave us alone, we've got stuff to do, you guys stay over there. And I think God is there saying, this is exactly what I didn't want you to do. 
This is a house of prayer for all the nations. Another way to say it might be like this. Are we living the life that we've been called to? We know Jesus' words on this so far are real and they're very serious. There is no life. There's no real life outside of what he's called us to. It doesn't exist. It exists for a very short time and then it's just over. Real life, his life, lasts forever and it doesn't exist outside of his calling. And since he's the life giver, outside of him, we just wither. Our own Mackenzie Williams this week, we, were, we meet on Mondays for our preaching research team. As we're reading through the text in Mark, she says this, it's in your bulletin. When we live into our calling as Jesus' followers, we actually live. When we don't, we wither and die. I think that Jesus is, is foreshadowing the same thing that Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, Zechariah, Malachi, and other prophets foreshadowed judgment and destruction of the temple. Now, it's interesting. Other gospel writers will look toward the passages that only speak of renewal or restoration of the temple. Mark only refers to Jeremiah 7 because in that passage, it's about total destruction. It is over now, okay? And that's the point that Mark really wants to drive home. So Jesus is foreshadowing the same thing that these prophets did. Just about 30 years after this passage that we're looking at, Rome will come into into the land of Israel and it will completely destroy the temple and absolutely raise the city. So Jesus is talking about a real thing that happens about 30 years after he says it. But they don't see it. The religious elite, they're not having it. It doesn't fit with their paradigm. It doesn't fit with what they know, what they are confident in. They're confident that they are doing the right thing. They're confident that they're on the right side with God. They're sure of it, because why? They have Torah, territory, and the temple. And here comes Jesus saying, the temple's about to be gone, boys. You better pay attention. And they're like, that's not happening, man. Not even close. Sometimes I have to wonder, I see that. Sometimes we have the Bible. We have it, it's ours. We have one nation under God. And we have our church building. You might say, well, I don't trust in the church building as the place where I meet with God and his presence. I know that God's presence is through the lives of believers, the Holy Spirit in them. I know that. I hear you. But I was imagining this week, what if God just evaporated every church building in America? Where would you go to worship? What would your worship look like? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It made me think, huh, I really do sometimes find confidence in the structured buildings that we've made. And yet my confidence or my faith should only be in God, God alone. It feels eerily familiar when I think about having the Holy Bible, our nation, and our church building. It's very much, I think, in many ways something we just, we wander and start to identify with those things. Do we trust in God or in the presence of our church building? So Jesus looks to Jeremiah 7. I've said that. I want to read Jeremiah 7 so you can see the intensity. Uh, we won't read the whole thing, but the part that Jesus is quoting from. You can see why Jesus wanted his hearers to pay attention to Jeremiah 7. Because he wants us to see what Jeremiah was talking about there is very similar to what I'm doing here. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3, Jeremiah says this, okay? The Lord God of Israel who rules over all says, change the way that you have been living and do what is right. If you do, I will allow you to continue to live in this land. Verse 4, stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says we are safe. Why? Because the temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. They chanted that 
He's literally telling them, stop chanting the chant that you do at the temple. They actually did this. The temple is here. That means we're safe. He says, that's false confidence, brothers. You must change the way that you have been living and do what is right. The promise is real. It's not changing. The question is whether they're going to live into it or not. If you keep moving, I'll paraphrase it a little bit. You, you, he then talks about don't, don't be fooled because the temple is here, which is like saying, I think, uh, don't, don't be excited just because you go to church once a week um, or because you have a confidence in something that you're doing or something that you own. The question is about whether you are really changing into somebody who wants to live in the way that I talk about real life? Are you becoming somebody who wants to live in the way God says to live? Are you being changed? You see what I'm getting at. They're saying, hey, we're good, we've got the temple. And he says, hey, if you're good, you want to be living the way that I have. And they've been very unjust, oppressing orphans and widows, and they've been particularly cruel to foreigners particularly cruel to people who weren't of their community. He says, you've got to change all that. And then in verse 710, you get to the part that Jesus must have been reading in Bethany the night before, okay? This is the piece he starts to quote. And he said, you go on ignoring me, you love other gods, you do all this other stuff that's not in any kind of way what I've told you to do. Verse 10, and then you come back and you stand before me in the temple and you chant, we are safe, we are safe, only to go right back to doing all those same evil things again. Don't you yourselves admit that the temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, this is God through Jeremiah saying, you guys come and do your temple stuff, then you go away, you do whatever you want, and then you think you're good because the temple exists. Come on. Verse 14, he says, just as I destroyed Shiloh, this is a place where the people had wandered, and he came in and he reacted to their wandering, and he laid it to waste. Just as I destroyed Shiloh, I will destroy this temple that bears my name. This temple that you trust in for help. This place that I gave to you and your ancestors. And I will drive you out of my sight. So when Jesus comes into the temple in the court of the Gentiles, and it is packed with commerce and chaos... There's no way he drives 20 acres full of market people out of there in one scene, right? He makes a point that's big enough for everybody to see. And his point is, I am now fulfilling what Jeremiah the prophet talked about, and this temple is going to come to an end. He's not just cleansing the temple. He's not just here to restore that temple. By quoting Jeremiah 7, he, he says, I'm destroying this thing. It's over now. The temple in Jesus' world had become a place that robs people of God's blessing that he intended to give to them. It has become, therefore, a den of thieves. Sometimes we interpret that to think that they were kind of price gouging, selling turtle doves for more than they were worth, not doing fair money exchanges. That's actually, you can prove that. There's some evidence to that. But in light of all that we've just talked about, I think you can see it's way more than a problem with price gouging or profiteering. This is about a people who have stepped outside of the life God made for them, and they've become very, very unwelcoming to their Gentile neighbors. Verse 19 of Mark. We're back in Mark chapter 11. We'll finish the story here. This is the last bun in the sandwich, if you will. We're back to the fig tree. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. And the next morning, as they passed by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed it, and it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the fig tree the previous day, and he exclaimed, Rabbi, teacher, look! The fig tree you cursed has withered and died. This would be a big deal for a Jewish person in the first century. 
The fig tree is a symbol of prosperity and providence and safety. Now it has withered and died. The symbolism is so thick here. Verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, and I think he's talking about the Temple Mount, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. Why would that happen? Well, is that because that's what you want? No. No, because if you ask for that, notice for the Jewish mind, the image of being buried under the seas is an image of destruction. So Jesus is saying, if you ask for God to destroy this temple, you're asking for something that he is going to do. And therefore, it will happen. He's not saying, if you really love Jesus, you can get rid of Mount Hood any old time you want. Just make sure you believe he can do it. That's not it at all. Don't think that way. He's saying, if you align your heart and mind and will with the one true God and you ask out of that place, you're going to ask for stuff that's very real and it will happen. This temple is going to go down. So, have faith in God, he says. But you must really believe that it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I'd paraphrase that. You must truly believe that my promises are real and not second-guess me. I am legit. Verse 24, and I tell you that you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first, forgive anyone that you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins as well. Wow. You can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it's already yours. I was talking with some friends this week about how we interpret that passage, and I think it's like this. I really, really want a brand new Toyota Tundra. I think they're the coolest trucks in the world. But I have this sort of notion that, is this telling me that if I really believe God can give it to me, I believe he could make a Tundra out of thin air, baby, then he will? give it to me? And the fact that he hasn't given me a brand new 2019 Toyota Tundra, that he hasn't, I must not believe enough? I don't think that that's what it is. Notice what, if you've been in this Mark series at all, we've seen Jesus saying, hey, your hearts and minds need to be dedicated to, attached to the real place of ultimate security, safety, and that's God not attached to other things. So even if I ask for a tundra, if you will, pick anything that you really would love to have, if, if what you're saying is, what I want, God, is ultimate safety and security, in you, it will already happen. That makes sense? So if I'm thinking about a, an object, whether it's a truck or a house or whatever, and I say, man, I really want that because then my life can be good, or at least better. I can be more secure, more safe, then you're attaching your heart the wrong way. But if you pray to God in faith, as he has said, and you understand that he has given you ultimate security and safety for all of eternity, what you pray for has already happened, and it's already happened in Jesus. Their heart now is aligning to the right will of God, and it is totally true. And then he says, forgive anybody. If you're going to stand before God and pray, be a forgiving person. And I think that's the coup de grace here, the final punch in this dramatic showdown with the heart of nationalistic pride and self-centered, hollow, fruitless worship. That's what he's, he's fighting. We have a territory. We have a temple. We're doing great. And he says, no, you must become a forgiving person. I would say, Central Bible, we must become a church of forgiveness. A people, not not just who forgive folks who sin against us, that's really important, 
but also just a forgiving way of life. One that doesn't grip on to stuff, but instead lets go of it. That's the Greek word for forgiveness, afiemi, to let go of. You let go of the transgressions of others. You let go of the things that you think you need to have to make yourself happy. And instead you embrace God fully and you're forgiving toward all. Jesus' sign act that we just witnessed has informed, it was informed by the prophet Zechariah. So he quotes out of Zechariah in the text we just read. We saw him riding into the town on a donkey, which is what Zechariah said. And here's another thing Zechariah prophesied. He said, it will come about that just as you, my people, were a curse to the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid. Instead, be strong. We come to this place then where we say, as God's temple in this world, are we forgiving? Are we welcoming? Or have we become so cluttered and chaotic with commerce and convenience that we can't even approach a non-believing person, much less become a place where they can turn their face to God, see his presence and feel his love? Jesus, through his gospel and his word and through his church, is saving us. And we will be a blessing. We will not be afraid, but instead we will be strong in Jesus, the brave one. We are in Jesus, the brave. We will live into his promise and his calling. And we will not wither and die like this fig tree does, but we will come alive in the presence of God. Thank you, Jesus. Pray with me. God, help us to come alive. <laughs> Remove the blinders that cause us to not see your reality. Open our ears so we can hear your truth. Oh, it feels so cloudy and muddied in this world. It's just an endless bombardment of information and pressure. I can't keep up with all of the things I'm supposed to do, and so the idea of trying to be a blessing to others just makes me balk and say, well, I, I need some blessing for me first. And yet I realize in that thought, God, and I think we all do, when we have those thoughts, we realize we've wandered from you. You actually are blessing us right now. You're present in our midst and in our hearts and souls. We don't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals to find your forgiveness. You've already forgiven us completely. And then you've said that we ought to do others. In the same way you blessed us, we know that you want us to bless our neighbors. And in the same way you forgive us, we know that you want us to forgive our neighbors. God, help us to see what a shackle is broken when we step into the power of your forgiveness. When we see that your number one nuclear level weapon against evil in the world was to forgive it. And the place that you destroy is our own broken hearts so that you can renew, renew our hearts and bring us back to you. Father, we love you and we trust you with our lives. We need you this day, tomorrow, and every day after so that we can be a blessing and a forgiving people in this city. Amen.